What's happening? Welcome back to My Average Greatness. Today we've got Nicholas Daniels. And a little summary and some of the things that stuck out to me after the conversation with Nicholas was that I think you'll enjoy today were, you know, Nicholas is a second generation immigrant. And one of the things that he talks about is the sacrifice that his family made, but also him taking the first step. So for instance, you know, knowing that he needed to get better, for instance, he wanted one of the examples he uses, he wanted to get better at Asian noodles. So what did he do? He didn't just study it. He didn't go somewhere locally. He went to Bangkok two times to study firsthand and get better. And it's that mindset and that willingness to take that first step and that risk, if you will. And then after you do that, it starts to get a little bit easier, as he says, and that becomes part of your everyday life. One of the other great things that Nicholas hits on was he started his career working for a pharmaceutical company, testing on lab rats and and just realized that that wasn't his passion. It was going to take 20 years to be able to do the science in which he desired. And he made that switch and took that first step to follow his passion, his dream into the culinary world, where then he ran into numerous roadblocks. He was passed over because he didn't have a degree from Johnson and Wales. So don't always judge a book by his cover is, is I think, universally something that's always said, but being passed over because he doesn't have the checkbox, but also humbling himself to go back to school, knowing that it might not have given him all the additional skill sets where he could have competed without it, but simply checking the box because he knew he needed that to move forward in his career. Uh, I applaud Nicholas for that. And one of the, the final things he talks about is, you know, being asked, you know, he addresses head on the challenges of the service industry, the late nights, the long hours, the stress, and that his wife began to give him the perspective of life and opened up his heart and realizing that asking for help isn't a weakness, it's a strength, where that then led him down the journey to open up Essential Kitchen during this time of need, during the pandemic, opening up a kitchen to help furloughed workers get work, but also feed essential workers throughout this time. So his entire journey comes full circle from being a uh, second generation immigrant, studying science to then coming into the culinary world, going across the world, working in some of the best kitchens in the world, studying his craft, humbling himself, going to get a degree, and then finding his wife and his rock to then make a difference during a time of crisis for our community with all of his connections within the food industry and people. So we thank you, Nicholas. I hope everybody enjoys today's episode as much as I did. All right. Welcome to another episode of My Average Greatness. Today's guest is Nicholas Daniels. Nicholas comes to us, was born in, in Chile, 
now lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, originally studied biochemistry at NC State University, and made the move over to the food industry. Nicholas has worked in three of the top 20 restaurants in the world, has consulted and opened numerous restaurants and breweries and bars, also is an accomplished half, uh, half marathon runner and has been voted the best chef in Charlotte. Nicholas's latest passion project comes for his desire to help people and the essential workers throughout our current crisis that we're struggling with, with the COVID-19 and providing food to our essential workers here in the local community. Please welcome Nicholas Daniels to My Average Greatness. How you doing, Nicholas? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, man, absolutely. So a uh, little bit of background. Nicholas and I are neighbors and we ran into each other. I think Nicholas moved into the neighborhood and, and was smoking some ribs one day when, when our daughter was just born and came over and enjoyed some of the best food I ever had. Didn't even know he was a cook, but it definitely showed in, in the way that you could <laughs> feed that many people in your backyard. So glad to get to know you, man. Uh, I, I always look for a re- reason to make some ribs. Heck yeah, I'll, I'll always have a reason to come and come and eat them with you too. So, uh, uh, you know, we were kind of talking just, you know, randomly, you, you'd had a post on, on Facebook that caught my attention and was about uh, Essential Kitchen. And we'll, we'll kind of get into that and how we got to that. But that was really the oris- originally why I got thinking of this would be a great opportunity to speak with you about it and have you kind of share that story. But before we kind of get to that, Love to really, you know, start. I mean, you've got a really unique journey that you've gone on. You were born in Chile. How did you go from from Chile, Central America, to Charlotte, North Carolina? Uh, that's that's just kind of hopping around has been in my blood. My family uh, moved around a lot from South America to the United States. Uh, spent some time in Europe, and I I kind of learned to move around and just kind of go with the flow uh, for the colloquialism, but um, I'm a second generation immigrant, so my, my family worked very hard to get to where they are, and uh, they sacrificed a lot to be where we are, um, so I kind of, I, I was really big into science and math, and I decided just to follow my dad's footsteps in biochemistry. And, um, I love the chemistry. Uh, I do. I still do. Um, but when I started working for a pharmaceutical company, I realized that it would take me about 20 years to get through all the loopholes and the politics to actually do my own chemistry. The rest of the time, testing lab rats was what I did three days a week, uh, three times a day, I'm sorry. Um, and it just got monotonous and just soul crushing. Um, so I decided to quit, move to a beach in Santiago, Chile, uh, next to Santiago, Chile called Vina de Mar and figure it out. And that's where I met a really cool chef that used to go to the pier, to the, to the, um, farmer's market and just pick up all his fish, means produce, and he'd develop a new menu every day. Um, he took me under his wing and kind of showed me what the nuances I was missing from just try banging out burgers and wings to actually making a meal. Um, 
he also taught me about molecular gastronomy, which is the modern uh, way of cooking, uh, taking ingredients such as olive oil and turning them into a noodle through uh, heat and a chemical process. That 100% grabbed me. Um, that hit the chemistry that I loved. I hit the food that I loved, and I was hooked from then on. That's a um, great combination. You know, you, you know, from an outsider, don't necessarily think of the, the inner nuances of chemistry and cooking, but there's, there's a lot of that, the mixing and what goes with what, and that, that's uh, uh, pretty neat. I mean, even just the, the, the most basic uh, component of modern cuisine is finding out the, the basic or acidic properties of, the meal, of what you're trying to change. Once you know that, you, there's different ways you can manipulate anything. You can turn it into paper. You can turn liquids into powder. Um, there's just so much you can do. But on top of that, it's just the, uh, the building of flavor. It's just putting salt and pepper on something is going to make it good. But seasoning a sauce a certain way, seasoning meat a certain way, uh, the way you, the texture and the way you, you cook the vegetables, whether it's high heat or through flame or through gas, those all compound into flavors. So you can cook everything perfectly, mix them together. They just kind of taste, yeah, but you build the flavors correctly. That's when you get that dish that, that just takes you back to something. This food's all about memory. Wow, man. I mean, I, I can hear it in your voice that the passion for food. So you, you made the move, you're, you were there, you started cooking kind of locally. Is that what brought you to Johnson Wales to then study? <laughs> or were you then working in restaurants prior to making that? So Johnson Wales was, was, a, uh, was something that I decided I needed when I came back. Um, I was running my own kitchen. Um, in, in actually in Barcelona and my, I decided that I needed to come back. Um, I wanted, I had, hadn't seen my family in a while. I hadn't been around. So I moved back and I started, I went to Wilmington. Then I went back to Raleigh where I went to college. Um, while I was moving around, I was, going up to New York and Chicago to do stages at some restaurants. Um, but I could never, every time I applied for a job, just cause I was a younger guy. Um, and it was from a restaurant and I led a restaurant that in a city that people couldn't call cause they couldn't speak the language. I, I don't know any manner of reasons, but I kept getting passed by for people that graduated from Johnson Wales. So <laughs> I, Necessity. Uh, yeah, so I went to, uh, I came down to Charlotte to check out Johnson Wales. Um, and if Johnson Wales wouldn't have brought me down, just Charlotte would have brought me down. It's a, it's a beautiful city. Um, I've lived in some huge cities in Chicago, bigger than New York. Um, just, it's a massive city. And, but this city, it's got kind of, best of both worlds i also grew up in durham north carolina so it was like a bit it was like a big city in the middle of like the rural city that i the where of my childhood that i enjoyed growing up um so i moved down here and went to johnson wales oh man i, I love it i you know i myself have changed careers and a lot of times people always tell you 
that there's a limiting factor and try to continue to overcome it. And then there comes a point where like, okay, I'll go do that and I'll give you that check box. I'm still going to be the same person, but now at least give me, give me a seat at the table to have a chance to, to prove myself. So um, I, I commend that and in, in humbling yourself to, to go and, and study and push yourself to put yourself in, in a position to succeed. But before I get into that, man, my ADD is going crazy. I'm going to bring us back. So second generation immigrant, your parents had moved to America. You then chose to leave America, go back to Central America. What, what sparked the, the leaving and, and going to Central America? To be honest, um, Mutt is just the set was the center of like modeling. It was a big party city. It's, it's, it's just an amazing place to be. Uh, if I, if it wasn't for getting away, I'm, it's one of those places I always wanted to move to. Some, some people want to move to the Cayman Islands. Some people want to move to Bahamas. I always wanted to live here. It's, it's beautiful. Houses are all multicolored. They kind of come down this embankment from the mountains onto to the coast. Um, you can sip a piece of sours and watch the sunset. I mean, it's it's just it was peaceful. It's what I want. Peaceful for twenty something year old that wanted to to drink all night, but still, it was peaceful. Yeah. And then from there, you said you were running a kitchen in Barcelona. So what brought you over to Spain? So a restaurant, uh, the restaurant I worked for, the one I was talking about, um, they actually got bought out by a casino. Um, they, they bought the lease from the building. Um, so they ended up tearing it down and building a casino. Um, so I decided to move up to Barcelona. Um, the chef, that I was working for in Chile, his brother lived in Madrid. Um, so I moved up there, um, stayed with him for a little bit and while I kind of looked around. Um, but he actually had his own restaurant. And after I started working at a different restaurant and within a week he had an opening. So I just switched and came with him because he focused entirely on modern cuisine. Um, we built that restaurant up um, and then he decided to build another one in Barcelona and gave me um, control of it. Wow. That's uh and that was all prior to any of the, the culinary schooling of just kind of what you'd learned and being immersed into, you know, the kitchen and food. In all honesty, I, there's nothing really that John Sowell's taught me that I hadn't learned already. I just got a piece of paper. Yeah. (laughs) Understood. Well, how did that then lead you into working in three of the top 20 restaurants into the world? So we were closed four months of the year. Um, So I would find restaurants I wanted to work at and I would go be as free labor. Um, Even here in the United States, uh, Linea, uh, per se, any of these chefs can go and go work for free. It's actually how a lot of the best uh, restaurants in the world are able to not charge ridiculous pricing because uh, 90% of their workforce is free. Mm-hmm. Um, they, the, 
what makes chefs succeed and it's a little different in in this time is your knowledge base um i would always look for something i didn't know um do i know how to, i wanted to learn how to roll asian like different style of asian noodles so i went to bangkok and worked in a restaurant uh for a few months just to learn that and it took two times going back and forth just to learn as much as much as they could teach me, uh, which is never going to replace a lifetime worth of doing something. But um, it's just, it's what made me successful in my future is learning different things from different places that do it really well. And so some of those was like Alinea in Chicago. Uh, that's where I, I uh, fine tune my molecular gastronomy, which I only got to work there for about two months, but um, it was it was some of the coolest stuff that I've ever done. So what, like, I've, having the self-awareness and then the ability to act on, like, hey, I need to go to Bangkok because I need to learn the specific method as opposed to go to a local place that might be cooking those types of foods or studying or watching YouTube. How did you have the like the mental fortitude to to pursue that and seek that greatness? I think it only takes one step. Uh, I believe that 80% of people in the world live their whole life within a hundred miles of where they were born. And it's that, that stresses me out. Um, All it (laughs) took, All it took was one, my parents moving around so much with me, but, but two is just doing it. It's that first step. It's like leaving the comfort of the reason people don't leave home is because if something happens, they have a support system. Even as much as they won't admit it to themselves, they have their parents or their friends or someone they know if like they fall in hard times, they've got a couch, they've got something. Well, to to actually just jump on a plane and you go on hard times, you can't buy another plane ticket home. It's it's one. Of, it's taking that initial step, and then after that, everything else is easy. I want to go do this. Okay, go. All right, I've already taken that step. I'm just going to go. Um, and then why not go to Bangkok and yeah. check it out? <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean. It's just, it's one of those things, why not jump on a train and go or jump on a plane? Uh, once you're actually in the infrastructure of Europe, it's not too expensive to get anywhere um, through trains or planes. Um, but it's just that initial trip. But you got to pull the trigger both financially and emotionally. And I love how you talk about it as almost very nonchalant, like, yeah, of course, that's, I'm just go do it. But the, I I believe that's what separates you from, you know, the herd, if you will, because to you, it's, that's what you do where a lot of other people making that first step is the hardest thing. So, uh, you know, sometimes that first step, the first time is the hardest and the first step, the second time is a little bit easier. And it's like building that muscle memory and, and getting comfortable doing it and then realizing that, you know, you can do this and keep moving forward. So that that's awesome to hear. I can hear it in your voice that it's like, why wouldn't I do this? Where a lot of other people really, really struggle um, to, to take that first step because of that fear. Um, 
it's a double-edged sword, but it's it's one that I think is necessary. So moving that on, so successful career, worked in a lot of the great restaurants. You, know, you helped with a open up a, a lot of my favorite restaurants here in Charlotte. When I was looking at the list, my wife went, ooh, that place is great. Oh, I love that place. Holy cow, I had no idea he was there. Um, so eating a lot of the food before I'd even know you, known you. And then it led you into a little bit of self-reflection. Tell me a little bit about that, which then eventually led us to the essential kitchen. Oh man. (laughs) So, um, there's a stereotype about chefs and it's a very true one. Um, but it's, it's chefs and service industry in general. It's a very lonely, um, profession. Uh, lonely as in it's a lot of, there's a lot of superficial, um, relationships um so you work and what here in the united states dinner dinner service ends 10 o'clock 11 o'clock on weekends uh in spain since people don't eat until 10 o'clock you're finishing uh service around 1 a.m midnight in chile so it becomes it gets to a point that there's only there's in the culture and the society we all live in, there's, there's not much to do after that uh, besides go to a bar. Um, for anyone that has not worked in a restaurant, it is just so much uh, stress and emotion and happiness, anger, all just pushed at you. And it's, especially if you work at a busy restaurant, um, I opened up Barcelona here in Charlotte and we were doing almost a thousand people a day. And that, that's, that's not throughout all day. It's throughout a six-hour window. And you, you're talking about almost 200 people in an hour. You break that down. You, I mean, you're not even doing – even if you did 60 people in a minute, I, 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 one person a minute, you're doing only 60. So it's a lot of striving for protect, uh, perfection, like being yelled at. Uh, it's – just a lot of emotion you when you leave you're still in that just that zone that you're just kind of you need something to calm you down and de-stress and you're you're still upset about your chef yelling at you or you're still upset because you had to clip your tongue because your your line cook kept messing up and you had to kick them off the line and take over so you're doing two jobs it's just so much so Obviously, it's still late at night, and you've got those high emotions going too. So, like, but the worst thing you can do, yeah, the worst thing you can do is go home and go to bed. It's, it's because you start, you just, you can't control it. So, what you do is you go, you go out with your friends, you you drink too much, you, you do drugs, alcohol, however, however you cope with it, you just you need to you find a way to cope, and chefs like to one up each other so it's never like go out for one or two it's it's like five or six and then it's just a lot of peer pressure and uh oh let's just keep going let's go back to our house let's keep going and and then, but then the minute it gets to a point you finally get home and you're you're like the home ends up being this place that you're hung over and tired and just alone and um you you live your life lying to yourself like this is okay. So you have, you go, you sit in bed and you have all these thoughts going through your head and 
So you drink more just to stop it. And it, it took me almost 20, it took me 15 years to actually figure out that there's more to life than just shutting it out and just work. Um, because even when I wasn't doing that, I was putting, doing hundred hours, 90 hours at work because I, I was striving to be better than everybody else. Um, and it wasn't until I met my now wife that I, uh, right before I met her and even while I was even thinking of just jumping on a private yacht and just going traveling the world and cooking on a private yacht and just to kind of de-stress a little bit from the day-to-day of a restaurant life. But um, she kind of like most significant women in our lives started putting perspective into into my life and and she bless her she uh she put up with me through three restaurant openings even while even while she was pregnant and me having to go to dc to train for six months um and then going to florida for three months to train for a new restaurant um and also opening up my own restaurant that unfortunately for different reasons failed so i mean i I went through a small depression through that um so to get back to it is just it took someone to center me and it it was it's it was something i wasn't used to because people in my field don't ask for help we we have to prove to others that we're better because that it's a doggy dog world If, if we ask for help or if we we show weakness. We get passed up for promotions. We 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 want to call out sick, but we we can't because if we don't work through the shift sick or in pain, I've cut a third of my finger to the bone, and I just put super glue and duct tape on it and a glove and kept working. Um, these are the things that were expected of chefs um, and anyone in that field, and they just bullied you to do it. So it was ingrained in you and you fought anyone that tried to let down those guards. And it took a few really deep dive conversations with my wife and, uh, and then having a daughter and the enlightenment of that and just realizing that I was done with the, the, the struggle of just trying to fight, claw my way to popularity and, and restaurant perfection. Um, that's when I started uh, working for more corporate style restaurants, um, which allowed more flexibility and time. And for me to see my, be with the people I care about, not just my family, but my friends in, in different situations instead of just at bars, but like have time to go on hiking trips and things like that. And it, it was just a journey of just self discovery. Never, never thought of chefs as being like hockey players, you know, playing hurt and, and doing all of that. And, you know, I think that's the ability of you to take a step back. And, you know, like you said, with your wife, it always takes somebody a rock by our side, you know, to help guide us through some of those times and help, you know, make us the men that we are today. So very thankful for the women in our lives. Um, thank you for sharing that. So then from there, your birthday came. 
you got sparked by Facebook saying, Hey, would you like to create a cause, you know, for people to donate for your birthday through Facebook and tell me how that was the, the, the spark of the mind project of essential kitchen. Um, I think it was kind of part of this self healing. Um, just, I wanted to do something, but most charities these days, they take more on the top line, on the bottom line than they actually donate. Um, and that was my concern. And I, I normally always forego those fundraisers, but what I wanted to do was to help the people were suffering. Um, and, um, I was the people that, uh, I apologize. Sorry. People that were furloughed that I knew, and luckily I was blessed to still have a job. Um, I was hiring to do odd end jobs. Um, I was finding people that needed yard work done or anything. So these guys can make some money. Um, but there's people out there. I realize there's people out there day to day, just sacrificing. I, I don't want to be out. I'm I'm in the restaurant. I'm in the kitchen. I'm alone. Like I pass boxes to people with masks. They send it out to uh, to whoever's picking it up. But I don't really come in contact. So I'm lucky. But uh, uh, people like our fire department, our EMTs, and our police department are all on uh, on a minute by minute basis coming in contact with people and people that there's a lot of people in this world that just are disregarding this pandemic and just to it and they don't care and they're not they're really selfish and not realizing that they they might affect others um but these these people are still doing their job they're not getting extra money they're not they're not getting anything more uh, a lot of us are sitting at home still getting paid or get collecting unemployment but we're we're safe these guys are still getting paid the same amount of money to go out with a new danger not just the fact that they might be injured or contracted disease. There's a known disease out there. So um, I was in the, I'm in the lucky situation that I have contacts and friends and I know people in distribution uh, companies that I can get things for a discounted price. And so I, I set up a GoFundMe uh, to, uh, for essential kitchen to just feed essential workers, uh, focusing on our first responders and healthcare providers. That's um, amazing. And in doing so, you were able to help your coworkers that had been furloughed or temporarily laid off to then provide work for them to then also help the essential workers. Is that correct? Yes. We, along with volunteers, we also paid a few uh, furloughed workers to help, um, with this project, which was it was which was great that we were able to get enough donations to do that. That's fantastic, and the way that the community rallied around you. I think you mentioned you know there were some personal donations, but also the the Charlotte community stepped up from a corporate perspective and provided funding for you guys to be able to do this. Is is that? Um, yes, with personal donations, we we man we we got roughly around five thousand dollars, but through corporate donations, uh, through small businesses, and from companies like Fresh Point and Foster's Cabinets, which are produce companies and U.S. Food, uh, we we got an ex- 
an extra 15,000. Um, so we were able to, um, I donated some to other causes just like ourselves. And we've also done uh, about 4,500 meals as at this moment. Um, and we're scheduling up. Um, the next project is a huge big picking for about 2,000 meals for, uh, for hospital workers. That's, that's awesome. I love to see, you know, in, in the times of crisis, it's easy to focus on what you look at and what you try to pay attention to. And sometimes what's on the news is the gloom and doom, which, you know, in this scenario, I think we need to be cognizant and be informed, but also ha- taking the ability to also readjust our lens and what we look at and see the good that people are doing and the way that the community and businesses and people are stepping up to help our fellow man or our other community members. So thank you for taking the initiative and having the passion, you know, through the self-reflection, it sounds like a, a journey. Uh, I'm excited to see where the journey takes you, Nicholas. And, and when this is all over, um, who knows when it will be. We, whether it's a socially distanced ribs, we'll, we'll have to get back together <laughs> from, from, from that perspective. But the way that I like to close this out is the reason that this podcast exists is for me to leave kind of a breadcrumb trail for my children of things that I want them to know me, people that I'm surrounded myself with. And it was really important for me to, to leave that behind in case, you know, for whatever reason. So I want to give you that same opportunity by asking, you know, the final question is if something were to happen to you, what message would you like to leave for your kids, your family, or the world? I actually thought about this quite a bit um, when we first spoke, when you first spoke to me about this, and it's it's a difficult thing. Um, but I think it all comes down to um, this one unrealistic thing that I was grown up believing, and it's that all adults have their shit together and that um because with that one thought i i believe that everything was always going to get better because i was going to be i was going to grow up and things were going to magically get better and i never was told or never was shown until i was actually in it that that adults are just just if not more um uh, prone to mistakes and uh, anger than children, and uh, to talk to my 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 daughter and like just to let them, let her understand that that problems are unavoidable, and it's just by learning to change your mindset from like a self pity and anger to a sense of will and determination will help. You discover who you truly are because if you let yourself get lost in the former it'll lead to a life where you lie to yourself and it's very hard to get out of it so staying true to yourself and not treating every downfall as as a slight against you instead it's just another building block to who the person you're going to become um it's the it's i think it's going to be one of the biggest lessons i'm going to teach my daughter and I, I could not agree more. Like con- I'm a big fan of like control the controllables and you know, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to that. And that's how you can take, 
take control of your life in a manner and by the way that you look at things. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And the way that we close out every episode is in honor of my friend Mike is love you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to My Average Greatness, a show highlighting interviews with average people doing great things from every walk of life. We hope you found encouragement and most of all, inspiration. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, keep up with us on Instagram at My Average Greatness. Make sure to leave us a comment and don't forget to follow and share the podcast. You were not born to be average. You were born to be great. And maybe you'll be our next interview. Till next time.